Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century, and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. The following is a poetical rendering of the last sermon given by a saint of the mystical path, namely Hazrat Khwaja Mu'inuddin Shisti Esmeri, may God be pleased with him, who passed away nearly 1,000 years ago. With your whole self, daughter and son, try to love all things and hate none. But mere words of peace will not do, nor will talk of God see you through. For in each of us is a gift, a seed of pure grace that can lift, when up from roots of lowly earth to the heights of our timeless worth. Produce your fruits of joy and peace, go share with all, and never cease to send perfumes of love that seep gently towards souls not yet complete. Stoke in your hearts truth's blazing fire, let it consume all your desire. So through this will come peace that heals and soothes the hurt which lives conceal. Use the light of your spirit to dispel darkness that touches you. Dissolve storm clouds laden with war. Be kind to the weak at your door. Do not ask for favors from kings nor take what a courtier brings. Do not seek help from any but one, the one through whom all things are done. Yet don't turn the needy away. Exchange laughter for their dismay. Lust the poor and the ones cast out, like the orphan who's filled with doubt. Bless the new widow who is lost, who now must pay what fate has cost. This is your goal, your life's true task, to serve all as you have been asked. Know your duty, learn to be strong. Honor that to which you belong. Guard deeds you do before you die, so from our lips will be no sigh of shame when you finally say farewell to earth on judgment day. The title of the following story is The Sufi and the Snowman. Once upon a time there was a snowman whose heart was cold as ice. He liked it that way because he did not know that things could be otherwise. 
The coldness of his heart reflected the bitter, stormy land in which he lived. No one could agree on how the snowman had come into existence. One day he did not exist, and then, all of a sudden, there he was, as if, somehow, in the darkness of night, a mysterious being had stealthily crept into the town square, so that the snowman could be shaped, formed, and clothed, without the town's people knowing what had taken place. The snowman existed in the north end of the town square. It was common knowledge that snowmen, and as well snow ladies, at least those who live in the northern hemisphere, like to be as close to the north as possible, because the compass of their hearts tends to point in the direction of a part of the earth, namely the North Pole, that is deliciously cold and holds a magnetic-like attraction for them. Indeed, snow people are drawn to northern climates like mice are drawn to cheese, that is, it is in their nature. Or at least that is the way it had always been for as long as snowmen and snow ladies had existed on the face of the earth. Except, of course, for those strange snowmen and snow ladies who sometimes were sighted near the South Pole, and as a result were upside down in their thinking. Yes, this was the natural order of snow people in the Northern Hemisphere, until there was a certain momentous event which took place in a small little town in the middle of nowhere. Then there was a major shift in the nature of reality for at least one snowman. The snowman stood all alone in the town square. An elegant but drooping hat was perched on his head. In addition, he wore sunglasses, perhaps, or he would not suffer snow blindness. A yellow scarf was wrapped around his neck and would flutter about when the wind blew. A smallish plaid vest covered part of his body. On his feet were red galoshes, and he held a shovel in his right hand with the business end of the shovel pointed skyward, as if he were on duty, ready to go into action during the next snowstorm. It is uncertain whether the snowman had picked out his own clothes, or if they merely had been forced upon him against his will. The clothes may have been imposed on him because snowmen are famous for not being able to defend themselves against those people who seek to do with snowmen whatever such individuals like. On the other hand, the snowman may have selected the clothing himself because snowmen are also well known for having a poor sense of color coordination in the clothes they wear. For some reason, even though everyone in the town was curious about how the snowman came to be, no one came near him. They studied the snowman through little spaces which had been rubbed clear on the frosted windows of stores and houses in the neighborhood. Each of the townspeople had his or her theory about the snowman and his mysterious origins. Every other Thursday the local newspaper ran a column outlining the latest thinking on the matter. Almost all of the people in the town were reluctant to visit with the snowman. This made the snowman sad. However, the snowman never let anyone know how much the lack of visitations hurt his feelings. He just kept the same expression on his face no matter how much people talked about him, or pointed at him, or theorized about him, or made fun of him. People looked upon the snowman as little more than a curiosity, but a lifeless topic of conversation. Consequently, the townspeople were entirely unaware that there was a consciousness within the snowman which was very much aware of the town, its people, 
and all that took place in that little community. One day a man came and sat on the green bench which was near the snowman. Based on the snowman's observations concerning life in the town, the snowman knew the man who came to sit near him was as much a mystery to the townsfolk as was the snowman himself. Just as people would point at the snowman and speak at a safe distance, in hushed whispers concerning the latest gossip that had been spreading around town like a wildfire with respect to the snowman, so too people would lower their heads when the man walked by them, and then, once the man had passed and was out of earshot, they would begin talking rapidly amongst one another in conspiratorial tones, and occasionally pointing in the general direction of the man. The man was referred to as a Sufi. Nobody in the town quite knew what this meant, but they all seemed to talk as if they knew. The one thing which they all could agree upon is that the Sufi was someone about whom they should be very cautious, perhaps even suspicious. There were many stories in circulation concerning the Sufi who lived in the town. He was described by some to be a madman. Others considered him to be evil, a source of deeds that hurt people. Some said the Sufi pursued a peculiar set of beliefs and practices with respect to life's meaning. When told about the existence of the Sufi, some visitors to the town reported that they had heard it said there was some sort of buried treasure about which Sufis knew. The treasure was said to be of infinite value, a very large sum indeed. Furthermore, due to the stories told about such treasures, a certain amount of difficulty had arisen in different localities. More specifically, some dishonest people who were greedy for money and power tried to trick unsuspecting individuals into believing that the dishonest people were real Sufis who knew about the hidden treasure and would gladly help people find the treasure if these quote-unquote victims would give the pretenders some money to cover various expenses, as well as follow the detailed instructions of the make-believe Sufis, instructions which often had nothing to do with finding any treasure, but instead helped the pretenders control the lives of their intended victims. As a result, many individuals became confused about who was a real Sufi and who was a counterfeit Sufi. Money is not the only thing which can exist in a real as well as a fake form. So many people in other towns had been tricked by the fake Sufis that people came to believe that the stories of fabulous treasures associated with the Sufis were just so many fairy tales invented to trick people to seek something which didn't exist. Many, perhaps most, of the people in the town where the snowmen resided shared such a belief concerning the Sufis. But fortunately for the snowman, the Sufi who lived in the town was a real Sufi and therefore was not trying to trick anyone or cheat them out of money or gain control over anyone's life, except perhaps his own. In any event, the negative ideas and thoughts concerning the Sufi in the little town in the middle of nowhere had taken on a life of their own. The people in the town merely passed those ideas around amongst themselves such as a virus which causes a cold or flu is passed on from one person to another through a cough or sneeze or some other form of contact. Of course, all of the uncertainties and rumors might have been cleared up if the people had just gone to the man and asked him what it meant to be a real Sufi. However, nobody did this, and in fact the people kept their distance from the Sufi just as they kept their distance from the snowman. 
The snowman was both very pleased and a little nervous about the fact that the Sufi had come to sit on the bench nearby. The snowman was pleased because he was quite lonely, and yet the snowman also was nervous because he wondered about why the Sufi had chosen to sit near him, when no one else in the town would do so. The snowman didn't know whether the Sufi wanted to be a friend or whether he had some dark purpose in mind that ultimately might come to harm the snowman. The snowman was very human-like in such doubts and wonderings. Day after day the Sufi came to sit on the bench near the snowman. Sometimes the Sufi would bring a book and read it. Sometimes the Sufi would move his lips silently as if talking to himself. Sometimes the Sufi would merely sit on the bench with eyes closed, seemingly asleep or lost in remembrance of something or someone unknown. On other occasions the Sufi would stand up from the bench and come over to the snowman in order to straighten the latter's hat or tie the snowman's scarf more securely or push back up over the snowman's cold black eyes the sunglasses which had been sliding down the snowman's nose due to the heat of the sun. Sometimes the Sufi would place the shovel more securely in the snowman's hand. Sometimes the Sufi would pick up some snow and pack the snow into places where which were becoming a little worn due to the howling winds that every now and then would rush across the town square and hit the snowman with a powerful wallop. From time to time the Sufi would look intensely at the snowman. It was his last action which proved to be most disturbing to the snowman because it made the snowman feel strange inside and somewhat uncomfortable. When the Sufi gazed at the snowman, the snowman felt something odd going on in his heart. The snowman had always been used to his heart feeling a certain way, that is, frozen. But now, beneath the intense look of the Sufi, the snowman felt like his heart was melting. And for a snowman, a melting heart couldn't be a good thing, could it? The snowman tried to think about the situation and determine what was happening to him. He wanted to know why his heart was melting and why, apparently, the melting only seemed to take place when the Sufi came and spent time near him. The strange inner feelings and experiences had not started right away upon being visited by the Sufi. In fact, as far as the snowman could determine, nothing much had taken place for the first several weeks except that the snowman stood motionless in the town square, while the Sufi, once or twice a day, would sit on the green bench near the snowman, engaged in various activities that on the surface at least did not seem to be out of the ordinary. The Sufi never seemed to want anything from the snowman. Rather, the Sufi just seemed to go about his life, reading, thinking, remembering, and so on. However, the snowman did recall that the first sense of strangeness had entered his heart when the Sufi began to do little acts of service and kindness for the snowman, things which the Sufi didn't have to do and for which he seemed to expect no reward or notice, and yet which helped the snowman in various ways things such as straightening the snowman's hat, or adjusting the slipping sunglasses, or retying the scarf, or patching up the snowman with new snow. The snowman appreciated all of these acts of kindness, but he didn't know how to thank the Sufi properly. After all, the snowman found it very hard to say anything which could be heard by others, because words just seemed to get stuck in his very cold mouth, and couldn't come out properly except as frozen currents of air that steam from his mouth. 
Moreover, the pieces of coal that made up the snowman's mouth always seemed to get in the way and block the escape of any words which the snowman might have formed in his mind and wanted to say to whomever might have been within hearing range. Everyone merely assumed that the snowman couldn't speak and didn't understand that the snowman actually could speak but had trouble getting his words out. Fortunately, whoever had made the snowman had left him with a smile on his face. The snowman hoped the Sufi would accept the smile as a token of the snowman's gratitude for being treated so nicely by the Sufi. However, even though the first strange sensation in the snowman's heart was associated with the kind acts of the Sufi, the snowman noted that the real serious melting hadn't begun until the Sufi began to look intently at the snowman sometimes for hours on end. Something was taking place between the Sufi and the snowman during these gazing sessions, but the snowman didn't know what this strange something was. The snowman not only felt this something, but it was almost as if these experiences had a taste quality all of their own. Just as ice cream and vegetables have their own unique identifiable tastes, so did the feelings and experiences in his heart have a sort of taste all of their own, even though it seemed rather strange to think in terms of there being some sort of a taste in the heart. Furthermore, he had no words to give expression to the feeling because he had never encountered such experiences before. In fact, as far as he knew, no snowman before him had ever encountered such experiences. Certainly not any of the snowmen that he knew from among his immediate family snow tree and ever mentioned anything like this. So how could the snowman talk about a part of life that went completely beyond his understanding or experience? He knew his feelings and experiences were real because he was having them, but he had no way of proving their reality should anyone ask him to do so, which was not likely to happen given the unfriendly and distant manner in which the townspeople regarded him. They probably believed he didn't have a thought in his head or even a heart with which to feel or taste. Although at first the experiences in his heart had alarmed the snowman and made him feel uncomfortable, and although such experiences were a deep mystery which the snowman didn't really understand, nonetheless in time the snowman came to look forward to those experiences when they did arise. The experiences were a complicated mixture of warmth, peace, friendship, purpose, a new sense of self and a sort of feeling like one was at home in the world for the very first time, and none of these feelings had been part of the snowman's life before encountering the Sufi. Through these experiences the snowman was beginning to catch sight of something within himself which he hadn't paid much attention to before meeting the Sufi, and yet this new aspect of himself seemed to have been there all along just waiting to be noticed. Moreover, through such experiences, the snowman was starting to develop a sense of identity about himself, that he was something more than a snowman, even though there was no denying the fact that he still was very much a snowman in every outward sense. In time, the snowman began to feel completely comfortable with the visits of the Sufi, even when these visits involved the Sufi looking at the snowman very intently. However, no sooner had the snowman begun to feel comfortable with things, the Sufi stopped visiting the snowman. In fact, the Sufi seemed to disappear from the little town altogether. 
The snowman did not know what had happened to the Sufi because none of the townspeople seemed to know anything about the whys and wherefores of the Sufi's disappearance. Since the townspeople were the snowman's main source of information concerning what took place in the town, the snowman was as much in the dark in relation to the Sufi's disappearance as the townspeople. Days passed by and the snowman missed his companion. Yet the snowman made a wonderful discovery during the Sufi's absence. Whereas previously the snowman noticed the strange melting sensation in his heart took place only when the Sufi was physically nearby, now he began to realize that he could feel the same warmth, peace, purpose, and sense of who he really was whenever the snowman remembered the Sufi in his heart, even though the Sufi was not physically present. As a result, the snowman began to remember the Sufi whenever he could, morning, noon, or night. The Sufi might have traveled or disappeared to who knows where. Nevertheless, as long as the snowman remembered to keep his heart focused on the memory of the Sufi, it was as if the Sufi was still present with the snowman. This practice of remembering the Sufi was especially comforting during the long, cold, windy nights in which the snowman would be standing all alone in the north end of the town square. Outwardly, the expression on the snowman's head looked much as he always had, a sort of blank, smiling face. But inwardly, within the snowman's awareness, there was much taking place that kept the snowman concentrating on something other than the cold, deserted, windswept, lonely town square. The snowman began to remember the Sufi so much that the activity started to affect him in a strange new way. More specifically, the image of the Sufi which he had in his heart began to glow. It was as if the image of the Sufi were giving off a mysterious light that didn't seem so much to come from the memory of the Sufi as it did from an unknown source of light that was showing through the Sufi. It was as if the Sufi were the wick for a candle that burned with a brightness that was borrowed from an unknown source of light a source of light which seemed to surround the Sufi even as it was independent of him. Moreover, the snowman began to take notice of another difference. He seemed to be shrinking. The snowman always knew how tall he was by comparing his height to the height of the green bench which stood near him. Unfortunately, now it seemed that with each passing day he was becoming shorter in relation to the height of the bench. When he thought about the matter and wondered why it was happening, he eventually realized that the light coming from the activity of his heart was not only melting his heart, but the rest of him was beginning to melt and disappear as well. He was faced with a very serious problem. If he continued to remember the Sufi who had disappeared from the town, and if he continued to experience the light that shone through the snowman's memory of the Sufi within his heart, then in time, the snowman feared he would melt away completely, and who knows what would then become of the snowman. On the other hand, if he stopped remembering the Sufi and stopped remembering the light which shone through the Sufi, then the snowman would feel lonely, restless, without any purpose, and as well the snowman might begin to lose sight of his new sense of himself, which he had started to catch glimpses of within his heart. What should he do? Should he continue on with the activities which were causing him to melt away? Or should he stop and continue on as snowmen had generally existed ever since snowmen first came into existence on earth, with a frozen heart and a consciousness that was filled with not much of anything except thoughts of cold, snow, 
and what was going on among the town people. After thinking about this matter over a period of several days, the snowman decided that he would rather melt away into the unknown than continue to exist in the north part of the town square without a sense of peace, warmth, friendship, or a sense of who he really was. Feelings, experiences, and understandings that he received from remembering that which seemed to give existence purpose and meaning. So, gradually, he let go of his fears and permitted himself to melt away. As far as the townspeople were concerned, the snowman disappeared as mysteriously as he had arrived. Some of the townspeople believed the snowman disappeared because of the effect that the sun's heat had on the snow from which the snowman had been made. However, you and I know that the real reason why the snowman melted away is tucked inside his heart. This is the understanding of a heart which returned to the mysterious source through which the snowman had come into existence, and therein lies the true story of the buried treasure which is sought and discovered by real Sufis, weather permitting, of course. For the first time in the history of snow people, the heart of a snowman pointed in a different direction than north, but the direction towards which the snowman's heart was attracted was very, very true. From near the outer rim of the Milky Way galaxy, you are listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. The title of today's meditative essay is Freedom. Having choice and being free are not necessarily the same thing. Many of the tragedies of our lives are based on the assumption that being free to choose necessarily means we have freedom. There are at least three issues which must be considered when thinking about the relationship between choice and freedom. One, who is the one doing the choosing? Two, what is the nature of the process through which choices arise? Three, what is the character of that which is being chosen? Let us begin with the following example. Suppose someone is a drug addict. Let us further suppose this person is hooked on a wide variety of uppers and downers. If this individual has money and contacts, a fairly wide assortment of choices are available to the person. There are all different manner of uppers and downers to be bought and consumed either individually or in imaginative combinations. Despite the presence of many choices, all of which are realizable, this individual hardly is free. The person's whole life is driven, in one way or another, by drugs. What one does, with whom one does it, and why one does it, are, for the most part, drug-related. How one feels, what one thinks about, the problems one has, and so on, are all heavily influenced by the seeking of drugs, the taking of drugs, and the aftermath which is left in the wake of drug consumption. In order to have choice in one area of life, the addict has surrendered freedom in virtually all other parts of his or her life. On balance, the exercise of choice has entailed very little freedom. The foregoing scenario can be complicated considerably by changing one of the assumptions. More specifically, let us now assume the individual in question does not have the money with which to purchase the desired drugs. There is still a wide variety of choices available to such an individual. This person can work extra hours at, say, a part-time job, 
The individual could borrow money. The individual could pawn or sell various possessions. The person could turn to prostitution of one sort or another. The individual could try to sell some of his or her blood. The person could steal items and convert them into cash through a fence or the black market. The individual could break into pharmacies or try to work some sort of prescription scam. Once again, there are many avenues of possibility for choice. However, all of these avenues are dictated by one's need for drugs. Most people, including drug addicts, would prefer not to have the sort of quote-unquote freedom entailed by such choices. One is degraded and humiliated as a human being to feel compelled to make those choices. In fact, in a very real sense, the more choices of this kind one has, the more curtailed is one's opportunity to be a fully functioning human being. One has sacrificed freedom for choices of a limiting nature. All choice, of course, places constraints on freedom. One cannot do everything. One only has a finite amount of time, energy, and resources available to one. Consequently, doing one thing precludes doing other things. Nonetheless, there are choices, and then there are choices. Some choices are liberating, and some choices close one off to possibility. Many discussions of freedom take place in a vacuum, as if freedom were something which could be studied independently of the nature of human beings and the character of reality. In fact, one's choices concerning whom, in essence, one believes humans to be, will affect one's ideas about freedom. Different theories of freedom follow from different conceptions about the nature of humanity. From the perspective of Sufi masters, an individual only can be free in a fundamental sense when one realizes one's essential capacity and true identity. All other possibilities, whatever choices they may entail, will ultimately impose on the individual in ways which sacrifice essential freedom on the altar of choice. Ultimately, when one embraces those kinds of choices, one becomes entangled in constraints and does not experience liberation. One becomes something other than whom one really is. If one has musical talent, if one can write and play music, if one has the heart and temperament of a musician, and if one derives joy, meaning, purpose, and value from music, but one is forced to become something else, then no matter how many choices may be associated with this other occupation, one will not feel free or be free. One only will feel free if one can be what one is, a musician. Practitioners of the Sufi path maintain we are in essence spiritual beings. We have spiritual talent. We have the heart and temperament of spiritual beings. For us, the source of our greatest joy, purpose, meaning, and value lies with spirituality. The Sufi masters indicate we were born for spirituality. We were created for spirituality. We will not know ourselves until we realize our spiritual identities. We will not fully understand our relationship with reality without the unfolding and maturation of our spiritual dimension. Our uniqueness will be given fullest and richest expression only through spirituality. When, through choice, we impose on ourselves conditions which thwart or undermine our spiritual potential, 
We interfere with our freedom to be who, in essence, we really are. When other people, through their choice, place obstacles in our way, which create problems with respect to the realization of essential spiritual identity, then freedom is being curtailed, although one may be permitted any number of choices in the trade-off. Many people get caught up in discussions about freedom of choice, however the real issue ought to be a matter of the way in which choice either constrains one or liberates one in relation to essential freedom. To the extent one places emphasis on the importance of extending the range of choice available to an individual, independently of considerations of essential spiritual identity, one will lose sight of what real freedom involves. Extending the range of choices to which a person has access, just for the sake of having more and more choice, is primarily of interest to the ego. This is so because the ego has no wish to realize essential identity, or to place constraints on choices which permit the individual to be liberated from the ego. Choice means continued life for the ego, whereas real freedom means the demise of the ego. The ego has a vested interest in expanding the scope of choice and narrowing the opportunities for real freedom to gain prominence as an issue with which choice ought to struggle. Who is the one doing the choosing? Are our choices an expression of the ego or the true self? What is the nature of the process through which choices arise? Do spiritual or non-spiritual processes predominate in the coloring, shaping, and orienting of choice? What is the character of that which is being chosen? Is one opting for choice as an end in itself, or is one using choice as a means for establishing an end of essential freedom? Are we painting ourselves into an existential corner through our choices, or are we liberating ourselves through our choices? Are we committing ourselves to choices which will impose burdens on us, or are we committing ourselves to choices which will free us from ourselves? Is choice in and of itself the basis of the utility function which should govern our lives, or should the basis of that utility function be rooted in an essential identity which transcends the idea of choice considered in isolation. The drug addict scenario outlined earlier is merely a prototype for an issue at the heart of the potential conflict between choice and freedom. More specifically, many of the choices we make in life involve addictions of one sort or another. We become addicted to career, fashions, food, sex, fame, power, status, money, possessions, hobbies, leisure pastimes, television, music, games, violence, and so on. All of these addictive lifestyles can have many, many choices associated with them. However, these choices are paid for in the currency of our freedom. When we are addicted to anything, we are not free to be who we really are. The choices of addiction are ultimately always about the constraints which, in time, come to be imposed on us by our desires and passions, or by others, or by the situation. The choices of addiction are never liberating, although initially we are deceived to suppose otherwise by the way choice masquerades in the form of freedom. The choices of addiction are always about enslavement to things, processes, circumstances, events, and people which compel us and drive us. 
Therefore, these choices will not and cannot lead us to our true identity or freedom. have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion.